Welcome to a special episode of Broadway Radio. I'm Matt Tamanini. We are coming to you on Monday, August 20th, which means that it's a dark day for Broadway shows. Not that it's sad or anything, just meaning that most productions on Broadway are off tonight, including the Go-Go's musical Head Over Heels, now playing at the Hudson Theater. Well, if you need your daily dose of the beat, you've come to the right place, as I have not one but two interviews with the artistic forces behind the show. First, I speak with the one and only Belton Bonnie Milligan, who plays Princess Pamela in the musical. Then, after years of loving his work on So You Think You Can Dance, I get to talk to choreographer Spencer Liff. Let's get started with Bonnie Milligan, who is making her Broadway debut in Head Over Heels, despite being one of the most popular vocalists in the community. We talk about her online following, the journey she's been on with this show, and much, much more. But I first have to start with a question far more important. So I have to start with an incredibly serious question. Yeah. How do you survive in the New York theater community with all of those damn Michigan Wolverines all over the place? As <laughs> a, as a fellow Ohio State alum, I don't know that yeah. I could put up with it as much as you probably have to. <laughs> it's, there are so many. Who knew? It's funny. Every time you're like where did you go to school? And I'm like, Ohio State. And it almost becomes like a quick stare down. And then you're like, how oh, dare. And I'm like, well, go back. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's like every time I look at a program and I have to see go blue at the end of a bio, I, it, it makes me want to get up and walk out. No, I'm, I'm kidding, of course, <laughs> but they've got a great program. Get but that refund. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, so, uh, but you know, it's, it is weird there. Um, there is such a, conglomerate of of Michigan people in the community. We we don't hear about nearly as many Ohio State folks. But what was your post-grad journey like to be making your Broadway debut in Head Over Heels? Um, well, I came to the city and honestly, for the first kind of five years uh, that I had lived in the city, I had kind of, um, I wasn't really kind of going for it. I'd had some, you know, things happen in life and it had kind of broken me down. And, um, I was taking a, a voice class in the city when I realized, oh my gosh, I'm like kind of very unhappy and what, you know, hmm. what am I doing? And I, I got into therapy, which was very helpful. And I kind <laughs> of found my way back to myself, which was great. And then from that moment on, it's like when I was able to kind of restore the confidence that had been there that I was able to kind of push through and I auditioned for the flea theater off, off Broadway mm-hmm. and um, got into um, a production right away that Ed Iskandar was directing. And um, that's how, I mean, honestly working there and working with Ed he kind of taught us all a lot about networking and talking with people. And um, is really when um my career changed because um, I met a lot of people doing shows there, including Jeff Whitty, who wrote, who, who was the original right. conceiver and book of Head Over Heels, um, which is how I got, got in on the ground floor of doing the very first reading. Um, I found out later Jeff had seen me in a couple of shows and had written it with me in mind. So, wow. um, That's awesome. which was amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but really from the four years where I started meeting a lot of people and, um, learning how to connect and, um, doing that. So I started doing a lot of readings and workshops and, and, and concerts, frankly, and working with a lot of yeah. new artists and getting my name out in the city and just meeting more and more people. Yeah. And that's how I first became aware of you was through like videos of performances at studio 54 or, you know, around town yeah. where everyone was like that, that belt and body moniker really kind of uh, took hold maybe before the larger um, theater audience really had ever even had the opportunity to see you in a show, but that the legend yeah. of belt and body <laughs> kind of took a foothold. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can say that I know my niece has watched the video of you and Laura Osnes doing the, the princess thing many, many times. So it's like those kind <laughs> of videos seem to kind of create this 
recognition of you. And then it's just like with every yeah. job that we've seen you get, whether it was the Kinky Boots tour or this out of town and then this on Broadway, it seems like there's been a lot of support for people who may not have ever had a chance to see you in a yeah. show before. Is that something that you felt as you were starting oh to gosh, build through yeah. these things? Well, even as I was touring um, across the country doing Kinky Boots, I was meeting so many people at the different stage doors across the country that, yes, were fans of um, my videos on YouTube, and uh, which was amazing because, um, you know, I had done my um, Bells and Bonds Bon Voyage, like mm-hmm. 54 <laughs> Below. I had been doing so many concerts there. They were like, you should do your own show before you leave. But they asked me, Jen- Jennifer Ashley Tepper asked me like a month before we were about to leave. And I was like, oh, I'm leaving in literally a month. I don't know. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> Not a lot yeah, of time. You know, yeah, I want to, I want to. And so that's when I got um, together with Andy Einhorn. Um, I had worked with his partner, David, at the Flea. And um, so Andy had seen me in some shows. And David, because I had asked him and he said he wasn't around. and But Andy would love to work with me. And Andy Einhorn is, you know, he's unbelievable. Yeah. He does like Audra McDonald concerts. And, you know, he just did Hello, Dolly and Carousel. And he's an unbelievable music director. And I'm sitting there going, what? He would work with me? (laughs) And I'm so grateful because, you know, I was rehearsing all day and he was doing Bullet to a Broadway at the time, but we meet and he really led me through that concert. And we, you know, put together just stuff I love to do. And he and I wrote that you know, Disney princess medley. And Mm -hmm. when Laura said she would join, it was just, I was like, okay, we're making this comedy. Let's do this. (laughs) And, um, so, you know, it was one of those, I hadn't been planning that for so long. It was this month whirlwind that we put together this concert and it was this great celebration. And then as I'm on the road, realizing all these people were watching it, you know, online was like this delightful surprise of just, um, you know, it, it, it was just something I hadn't really planned these viral moments, you know, to uh, happen. And much to my delight, they did. Like, it's, and then the support that I have received through everyone and, you know, beyond people that have just seen the videos or those that have gone to all these 54 Below concerts or, you know, the Joe's Pub or wherever I've been, um, I've started seeing at the stage door who, you know, faces I've recognized from seeing after all the concerts and wow. that are so excited and proud and it moves me beyond anything I could describe because you really do build your own community and I've built a really beautiful one that they, they've built it for me I feel like that um, they've just embraced me and um, I'm just delighted to be like on the journey. Yeah, absolutely. And and you talk about community and, and how it just kind of happens organically. I feel like that's kind of the same thing that's happened with Head Over Heels. The yeah. I, I know when people and I've talked with Spencer Liff about this, but when you just kind of give the elevator pitch about what this show is, it's really hard to understand how a 15th century poem works with go-go's music and it's kind of contemporary, kind of like it, it's weird, but when people see it, it's like this community where just everyone is so happy to have been in the theater for that show. And then every single person that I know that has seen the show and I don't live in New York, so I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but everyone that I know that has seen it just talks about what an incredible experience is to have seen the show and been in the Hudson theater to witness it. Yeah. It feels really special. The, and the, again, the people we're meeting at the stage door, there's just something happening in our show that it is joy. It is like, it is so hard to describe it, but it is like, it's romantic comedy. It's things that you love, but on top of all these things, we're representing, we have representation that, hasn't ever happened before, like for either, you know, non-binary individuals um, or, you know, we have Peppermint being the first trans woman to, uh, that, you know, is openly trans Mm -hmm. originating a role, a principal role in a Broadway show. And, you know, and you have uh, my story. It's a, it's a lesbian love story that is actually (laughs) just joy. There's no like, you know, there's no toil of, should I be gay? That's not the point. Like it's me discovering who I am. It's not me rejecting it. I just don't understand it until I do. And then it's just joyful. And that's been a huge thing too. Like, especially our, our young queer constituents like coming and being like, yeah. 
oh my gosh, like it's just joyful and you are accepted and how healing that is in so many ways. You know, one of our fans, uh, a young lesbian, and she said, you know, I'm not accepted at home. And she's come and seen the show. I don't know how many times at this point she gets rushed tickets and sits in the front row. And yeah. it's just like, it means so much that there is this world where it's like who I am is accepted and I'm not accepted at home. And I just want everyone to see this and everyone to embrace that, you know, diversity and individuality and people being their authentic selves is a beautiful thing. It's not scary, not hard to say, Oh, my pronouns are they. And you go, what? Why? Just, does that affect your life? Say, okay, their pronouns are they like, it's, it's just a world where we're showing this king who has a hard time embracing change, learn. And hopefully some people that end up in the theater that might feel the same way as him might might hopefully come around to the other side as well because it's really a message of love and um, a joy. It really is a funny, funny show. And I think in this world right now, which is really hard and scary and difficult, that we provide a quick respite of a world of, you know, joy and acceptance that I'm very proud to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we, we talk so much about uh, the importance of representation on stage, but a lot of times yeah. that discussion is about, you know, maybe non-traditional casting or colorblind casting, but this is a show, yeah. I mean, technically not an original show because it's, you know, based on a poem and has the Go-Go's songbook, but this is as original of a musical <laughs> as you could yeah. possibly imagine when you think of the content of it. And knowing that Jeff Whitty originally wrote this role for you, you've been involved from the very beginning. What was that process yeah. like of saying, this is a bonkers idea, but we're just going to dive in and figure it out. I mean, how uh, this seems like that has to have been such a fun, creative process because it seems like there really must have been no limits onto what you guys would have been doing in the rehearsal room. Yeah. It's amazing how much it's, you know, shifted and changed and um, along the way characters that were there that weren't there, you know, when we very first did it, the very first reading, you know, it wasn't in iambic pentameter. And then when I went out mm. to the Oregon Shakespeare festival, all of a sudden, it was entirely an iambic pentameter. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Surprise. So it's like, yeah, ships like that. We're like, okay. Where, you know, you're finding it along the way. And then up to, you know, being out at the out in San Francisco, even the changes from the current to Broadway are amazing. It's, uh, I have so much, I've always, of course, respected and loved <laughs> musical theater. I love it with my whole heart and soul. But I have such a deeper respect for I mean frankly anything I'm going to see on a Broadway stage because it is so hard to put up a show and it it's so many people putting their whole guts and heart into a project to try to find the best version of it and working so so hard that um, it's unbelievable you know and it, it was amazing getting it on the ground floor because you get to have, you know, an opinion on the character and you're forming the character. And I have such a fun, full understanding of Pamela, you know, and in each version as it's changed and different, you know, fellow cast members have joined, you know, I'm the only person that's still been in it to oh, wow. learn how to be open to, well, this is a different actor. So I want to be open to finding my dynamic with this mopsa so that I don't just come to the table being like, well, this is how it is. Because also, how awful would that be <laughs> for everyone? <laughs> but um, it's um, it's an interesting thing to have been with it forever and to know who this character is, but then to be open to the different changes and the shifts and just see what else you can find in this new rehearsal process or this new piece, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, I've learned so, so much, but mostly my love has grown so much deeper for anyone that's putting up on your show because it is hard. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. This stuff isn't easy. It's not for the faint of heart. But um, no. one thing, one thing I feel like we have to, I have to at least mention is that there was some uh, brushback because of a certain uh, review of the show, which I won't, you know, I don't want to, this isn't about slandering anybody or getting upset about anybody, yeah. but you know, it, I think it's a, this show purposely 
challenges people and tries to get people to see things and understand things that they might not normally encounter in their everyday lives. And to me, reading that review, that screamed of how important that message is um, as because, you know, look, I'm I'm a white dude from Ohio Um, growing up. These were issues that, you know, I'm from central Ohio. I, these were issues that were never really presented to me. And that's what I think speaks so importantly about Uh this show is that it's an opportunity for people who might come to the show for whatever different reason. Maybe they're a a Go-Go's fan and they might just learn something, but also have a good time while doing it. Is, is that the, I mean, I guess coming out of that whole dust up about the review and a lot of the reviews were really positive, but I feel like that one kind of overshadowed a lot of it. How did you guys as a, as a group, band together to react to that that was hard i mean the next day you know we had the day off after opening but the the following saturday we had a meeting with a couple of our producers at the theater and they said you know we are so proud of the show and what this is and you know good art hopefully does it it can be divisive with people and clearly so much of you know what that review said was just for me very false like I know which show um, he was at and uh, there were certain things in there that I was like that's what no that's like you you <laughs> came in not wanting to like it and there that that's okay all right whatever and it, the, the language was so just hurtful and um, mean-spirited and um, just uh, it was just, it was very clear that that was, that was a decision and the flippant language about pronouns and it was very rude and dismissive of a lot of people. And so we banded together knowing, well, we know those are, that's not the truth. That's not the truth of our show and that we're affecting a lot of people's lives, that the show means so much to them and that our producers are like, we stand behind you all. We love you. And we had great reviews too. And so don't let that get you down and let's keep doing, you know, the show that we know and love that we have. And they've been so incredibly supportive and we just kind of had to band together and remember our truth and remember what it feels like after every show, which is an unbelievably supportive, joyful audience. Yeah. It was like a weird cold water splash in the face the next day because just, I was not expecting it at all. Um, that review just because I've know I know what I've felt every night and uh, the people I've met and so um, yeah our message was soldier on and know what we're doing and uh, and do it for the people that have never seen themselves on stage before and need need to see that you know in so many ways between all the different kinds of representation and even you know me you know he it called me provocatively cast, which was a very side eye kind of bizarre yeah. thing about provocatively cast as the pretty girl. And it's just like, that's hurtful. And I cried a lot and you have to move on because that was Jeff Woody's original intention was to have Pamela, the beautiful sister, be the plus size girl and to have nothing in the dialogue about it. And to say this was a beauty standard. If you look at old art, you know, they were, they were soft, they were round, they were chubby. That was beauty. And so it's, I'm meeting a lot of people and I've had so many messages about what it means to have me sing the song beautiful and people starting to try to embrace that, embrace their own beauty. Cause they never thought they would see something like that on stage. Yeah. Cause you don't have plus size love stories unless it's about it you know unless there's something in the dialogue about either the person overcoming their self-hatred or all these different things and we're revolutionary in so many ways i i just to me there's so much representation in the show that if you walk away wanting to hate it then you should really look deep inside yourself because something's <laughs> going on yeah and and you know of course that review came on the heels of the the one in, also in the New York Times uh, about Smokey yeah. Joe's Cafe. So it was just a weird thing because obviously if a critic doesn't like the show on the merits of the show itself, the the writing, the performances, yeah. the design, that's one thing. But this seemed yeah. a little bit more personal and, and oh, yeah. outside the bounds of what a normal critical analysis should be. But anyway, yeah. I'm very glad to hear that you guys – seem to have taken it with the with the appropriate resolution because uh, I, I feel like so much of 
a lot of the other reviews, but especially the word of mouth of people who have who have been in the theater to see it, just embrace the message that you guys are trying to put forth. And I think that's really what's yeah. the most important thing. So um, I won't take too much of your time here. So just uh, to, to get you out for people who haven't seen the show and they want to come and spend an evening in Arcadia at the Hudson Theater, how can you describe in a little bow, a little package, <laughs> what the experience of seeing Head Over Heels is like for somebody? I think that it is a wonderful respite of um, the world today that you can come and kind of take away on like a, a magical, um, a modern day fairy tale. There's lots of kind of Shakespearean and some elements. And uh, so there's magic, there's, you know, romance, there's mistaken identity, and there's a lot of comedy. And it's um, fast paced and um, just full of joy. And I think you'll leave feeling happier and lighter. When Whoopi Goldberg came and saw it, she loved it so much. That's what she said. She said, I feel lighter now. And I feel like I can tackle the day a little bit better than when I walked in. And she went on The View and talked all about it. And uh, I think if you just come in with your open mind and heart and ready to just laugh a little and escape, um, you will. And you'll um, hopefully learn a little something and leave feeling the kindness and the heart that we all are embracing. Next, we turn our attention to Spencer Liff, who began his career as a performer on Broadway and national tours years before his 10th birthday. That early start on stage also led him to an early start in choreographing. He tells a fantastic story about how he became a choreographer on So You Think You Can Dance, having never actually choreographed anything on his own before. He also talks about why Head Over Heels is the thing that he is most proud of in his entire career. I open our conversation asking him about how the show's creative team settled on a specific viewpoint to tell this story, which has so many varied source materials at play. Well, it was oddly as strange and mashed up as all of these elements seem. I instantly saw what it should look like, what it should feel like. Um, I am a, a huge history buff, and I've always loved being able to reference, um, you know, Renaissance times. And and so I just began to sort of see the choreography jumping off the page of these famous Renaissance paintings. Um, and that was my original inspiration. And you can actually see a couple of those paintings throughout the show. But more than that, I, I went on like this art tour of Europe right before we started our lab about two years ago um, and just started taking a ton of pictures um, at the Reich Museum and at the Hermitage in Russia um, and to Copenhagen and Stockholm and, and I realized like there's all this angular lines and, and the posing of these people and they were so, they were so sort of over the top grand and fabulous and I knew that that would be a really easy thing for me to pull into the characters. Uh, but I did want the choreography to be the most modern piece of the puzzle with our text that was in, you know, written in 1550-something and our songs that were are mostly 1980s. I knew that I didn't want to really serve either of those two eras to, to bound myself to, to one of those. I wanted it to be my own thing. Um, so I knew I had to have, like, a really energetic punky, fresh, like driving beat to this choreo. Um, and, you know, we're lucky that this creative team, if you talk about the entire team, we already had a, you know, a big hit show together. All of us did Hedwig and the Angry Inch together. Right. The same costume designer, lighting designer, sound designer, set designer, director, and choreographer. That's a lot of people on a team to reassemble. And we knew how to work together and we sort of just gelled and riffed off each other Julian Krauss, the set designer, decided he wanted everything to be Trumploy and painted, which went really well with my concept of paintings. And then Arian Phillips, our costume designer, decided that all the costumes, rather than be really heavy with brocade and stitching, would be all flat cloth that everything on the costumes would be painted. And so I think we just sort of inspired each other. And, and then at the helm of that, I believe that Michael Mayer has the eye. Michael Mayer's director, for, for anyone that doesn't know, um, and has done such things like Spring Awakening, um, an American Idiot, and he's so good at 
at being able to mash up worlds, but I trust his eye and his taste making, you know, ability to, to lead us in the right direction. So once we had all those pieces of puzzle into play, I knew that we were all going to deliver really strong, good work that maybe would be polarizing, would certainly not be like anything that was seen before, but we had the ability to create our world. So I wasn't ever really worried for myself about like doing a step or doing a move that didn't feel like it belonged in our world because, because I created these dancers, I created how Arcadia moves. It almost became very natural. I was like, well, I, then I get to set the tone for this, which doesn't happen a lot in musicals, if you're stuck to an era like a 1920s flapper piece, or yeah. you know you're doing hair in the 70s, like you, the the roadmap there for you already. But in this, we were lucky enough to create a fairy tale land. Yeah, and so when you're talking about that, obviously you reference the the paintings and how that kind of overlaps with all of the other design elements. But from a choreography standpoint, like what were the moves that you kind of drew from as inspiration? Was there was it just let's see what makes sense or was there kind of a palette of things that maybe if they were eclectic and not from one specific genre, but was there a palette that you used to say, you know what, this is how the citizens and the royalty in Arcadia is going to, going to move. It developed over time. I mean, I, I have my own style and my own and my own sensibility as a choreographer before I came into this project. And that's very athletic it's, you know, it's very high energy. Um, but as we began to develop, um, you know, there was, there was these elements of um, these, these club kids and this queer sort of club world that I actually grew up in in New York. I, I moved to New York when I was nine years old. I was in a Broadway show then. And then, you know, through coming yeah, we'll out. Get to, we'll get to, to that. Go, we'll get to that, Spencer. Okay. <laughs> but through going out as a teenager and sneaking into the tunnel in the limelight when I was like 15 years old, I was so incredibly enamored with the club personalities. And they were the most fabulous, over the, over the top, but just beautiful creatures I'd ever seen. And so I, those elements I'd never really been able to incorporate into my dancing and certainly not on the Broadway stage. So tiny touches of, of voguing and whacking and tutting and really just like posing started to find their way in. And in doing so, like I was able to actually reference the eighties in a very underground way. You know, there's a big difference between yeah, absolutely what was going on in the 1980s in the, in the mainstream world. And, and those moves to me are kind of comical and they're funny. And they, it's like what we did when I danced in the wedding singer, it's, you know, the running man and the robot and things that like would kind of make you laugh. I don't want this choreography to be funny at all. I want it to be incredibly cool and sexy. So what was really going on in the eighties in the underground club culture world, which you know, was, were these elements evoking and, and we, you know, I didn't put that, just verbatim on the stage, I sort of took it and, and thought, well, like, what if this, what if this voguing world was happening back in, you know, Renaissance time and, and with these Tudor costumes and that would have to look a little different and we'd have to turn it on its head. But I, you know, the first piece of choreography I created was the opening number and it was when all the dancers line up on the big table and they do this sort of crazy intricate percussive table dance. And I had that in my head and I didn't know what it was, but when we were talking about an opening number and establishing what the beat was, you know, what that meant uh, emotionally, what it meant to the story, but also like how to physicalize that. I'm like, I think I know what the beat is physicalized. It's I'm like, they're going to line up at a table and they're going to like do this cool dancing with their arms on a table. And of course, like no one knew what, that what I meant by that. So it was the first thing I did. I got the dancers in a room and we came up with that table dance and our, it took an entire first day of rehearsal to come up with that moment. And at the end of it, I showed it to the director, I showed it to the producers and I could see all their faces go like, Oh, this is cool. I still get it now. And like once I unlocked that key, then the rest of it really kind of flowed out pretty easily. If I, if, if it's, you know, it sounds strange, but it, you know, once, once you find your end, then you can fly from there. Yeah. Well, and, and it, it's interesting to me that you said like the, one of the things that 
made the most sense and was probably almost instantaneous was this club culture. And you did reference it. I mean, it was a very specific queer dance language. And so much of the talk about Head Over Heels is how it not only just breaks barriers because we often talk about Broadway shows breaking barriers, but it, but it does it in a way that is not necessarily the focus. I mean, it's the focus of the show, but it's, it's so ingrained and so organic in the story that it doesn't like, if you just sat back and didn't think about that, you would just see head over heels and not necessarily know that it's about all of these different uh, queer and non-binary and, and trans and, and uh, gay people. And it, I feel like that is kind of what you're saying with the choreography is that it just is, it's underneath there, but you've kind of taken it to the place wherever Arcadia is. Well, it's, it is organic because it was created by a lot of queer artists or at least a lot of, you know, in the family, like, you know, you look at the costumes, Arian Phillips has designed like so much of what Madonna has worn. And of course that's ingrained in, in queer culture and Michael Mayer and myself and I, like we have a queer sensibility. I'm a very proud artist that is that, you know, we're able to put ourselves on the stage and it wasn't with an agenda. It was just the world we were creating because we were sort of asked to create, you know, Arcadia is a utopian idealistic world and to us that is what the world is you know it's like the (laughs) dancing and what the people look like on the stage is how my brain sees most of the world it's very bright and colorful and glittery and and it has a lot of shape and texture to it and so I'm I'm happy that I I agree with you that I, I think it feels very organic we were very careful not to be preachy and not to try to feel like we were pushing an agenda it was just saying like hey this is we're we're representing you know at the cast at the beginning of the play they think they're in a utopia but the message we're really getting across is that you know you can get stuck in your ways and traditions are great and they're fine but you have to change or you will wither and die. And there has to be progression. And it's not always going to be the same way. And these characters that are very rooted in their ways, and that's sort of what the beat stands for to me, is that, you know, it's like, it's the way things were always done. It's like, it's Fiddler's tradition number is where we start. Like Hmm. these people do this, and these people do this, and princesses marry princes, and you don't ask questions, and that's just how it is. And it's not till everything gets shaken up where... One princess says, no, I want to, I want to be with my handmaid. The other princess says, I want to be with the shepherd. And I, you know, it's, and it's me accepting that like, those things are fine and you should do you and I'll do me and we'll all be better for it. But that's the overlying theme of the show. And it just happens to incorporate some queer themes, you know, and of course we've gotten a lot of, of great notice for Peppermint. And for me, it's one of the most important parts of just in terms of representation, because that is such a new element on a Broadway stage that mm-hmm. there would be any positive trans representation. And we've had so many people, you know, of, of, across the board, whether just, you know, be just exploring gender fluid and non-binary or, you know, been trans for years and, and still have never been able to walk into a theater and see themselves on stage. And it's meaning so much to them. Um, and that's very cool to be part of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. So, um, we mentioned you mentioned earlier that you moved to New York as a as a young kid uh, to be in a Broadway show that was big, um, a show that I still don't understand how it wasn't a, a much bigger hit than it was. Um, but you know, for me, I first became aware of you through "So You Think You Can Dance," and I think that's probably the case with a lot of people. And you know, my question is: every whenever we see, especially choreographers, like when's the point when you go from being a performer? To being a, a, a choreographer, because obviously it's not always necessarily a, a, you know, just flip a switch and you go from one to the other. There's bleed over and stuff. But is it I know for a lot of people, it's physical when you just can't dance anymore, but you're still young. You could probably still be dancing in Broadway shows if that's what you wanted to do. But for you, when did the change come to say, OK, I'm transitioning from a performer to a creator full time. Obviously there's, again, there's bleed over in that, but when did that, you know, the hat officially switch from one to the other? Well, that it's a great question for me. My, my journey on it happened sooner. I will say, cause I think it's funny. Yes, I can still dance. I keep myself in great shape. One of my rules is a, a step does not ever go in anything. I close off if I can't still do it. 
Um, or if I can't do it, I will be up with my dancers in a heartbeat and, you know, demonstrating and dancing with them. And, and I, you know, there's lots of choreographers who don't actually dance and they, they create on their bodies. It has to come through my own body. But, um, because I started really young, I had a full career. I mean, I started on the road when I was seven years old in the Will Rogers Follies. I got my equity card at seven. So I, I performed for a lot of years. I did five Broadway shows as a performer. Um, the bleed over time, which is, is absolutely true, started for me when I met Rob Ashford. And we were doing a wedding singer at the time. I was just a dancer in the wedding singer. He had a fabulous associate named Joanne Hunter. Joanne went off to become her own choreographer. And I really liked their relationship and their, their teamwork and watching them create the wedding singer. And so the next show Rob was doing was Crybaby. And he needed a new assistant. And I stepped up. And I said, I want to assist you. I want to learn about the choreography process. I had always known that I was going to do it. That's a big part of that question is uh, from when I was really little, watching Tommy Toad work, watching Susan Stroman work, I was like, oh, I'm absolutely growing up to do this. Like, I cannot wait to be in charge of the whole room and create. And, I, you know, <laughs> I'd always had these grand visions in my head and tried to boss around the kids in the playground to make them do my shows at recess. And they just would listen to me. So I'm like, well, I can have an entire room of people that has to listen to everything I can say. But, um, but I, um, I knew I wanted to learn from Rob because he came from such a storytelling place and it was not about the steps and it was, you know, he's, he was like a director through dance. And, and so I was his associate for years. We did wedding singer. I did a lot of workshops with him and I started uh, with him associate choreographing like the Oscars and the Emmys and the Kennedy center honors and was doing all this TV live TV stuff. And I realized how much that I loved the, the world of live television, the pace of that, how quickly you have to move through things and make decisions. And, um, and so I was just sort of working with him and then working with all these other great choreographers being their associates or assistants. And I made my way through kind of all the top working choreographers at the time, dancing for them, dancing in the show, and then being part of the pre-production and all of that. So that was the bleed over time. And then I got this crazy break, which was So You Think You Can Dance. I was 23. I had been a big fan of the show. They had had five seasons on air already that I had watched obsessively every episode and me too I was, I was not happy well yeah i mean from literally episode one i was just hooked and and we used to watch it backstage i'd be on in a broadway show and we'd have so you think you can dance on in the green room backstage and we'd run off stage and like try to catch the numbers and run back on and, and do our own show but um i was not happy with the broadway representation on that show and i felt like the category was like, was odd and muddy and like, what is Broadway dancing? Because it covers every style. And I wasn't, I didn't feel like the Broadway category was telling stories, which is what I thought, you know, was, was the one thing that should be defining it. And at that time, the only thing on So You Think You Can Dance that were telling stories was the contemporary and then off the hip hop. I'm like, all right, well, there's something off about that. And, and so I, got a meeting uh, somehow to march into that producer's office of So You Think You Can Dance. And, and as a kid who had really choreographed nothing on my own, had all these grand ideas and gave all my concepts and, and pitched myself, uh, you know, and they told me to go home and put on tape the ideal number that I would do for them if they gave me a shot. So I, I went home and I took all the money that I'd saved up. Um, it was my Fire Island vacation fund. And I decided it would be better spent um, at this shot. It was like a, a once in a lifetime shot I saw. And I hired a camera crew and a bunch of dancers. And I choreographed the really the first thing I'd ever choreographed on my own completely. And I made a rehearsal package, which meant I interviewed myself talking about the piece. And I filmed this doing lifts bad and, and watched just like, you know, get better <laughs> through the process. And I took the graphics from the show and I put them on the screen. And so I basically like produced my own segment my what my one piece of that of that puzzle would be i sent it in turns out no one had ever done that before um and it made them realize that i knew what the show was and that i knew what i was doing so phone rang and i said you're going to be on the show in three days you're flying out to la and i instantly oh. felt like i was going to vomit and thought oh my <laughs> god i've like gotten myself in over my head i don't know what i'm doing and i flew i flew to la they they put me on the show. They gave me two dancers that were as far from my style as possible. They picked out my song for me. They told me what to do. They they sort of like dictated what, 
what it would be. The week was terrible. The number was really bad. I didn't know how to time manage. You only get six hours on the show to create your piece. And you have to tell the costume designers exactly what you want and the lighting designers. And you have to tell the camera where you want it to be. And like, you're making all these decisions that were sort of over my head at the time. So this sort of lukewarm-ish number that I wasn't really proud of went live on air. Everyone from New York was watching it. It was so like proud of me for getting on and it was such a bomb. And I was just like mortified that that was the first, you know, my big choreographic debut. And so afterwards, I like hugged my manager, cried a little bit, dusted myself off and like marked back into that same producer's office and told them why everything went wrong in a week and why if I got another shot, I would do it differently in, in this ABC way. And through fate, um, they had a spot that had just opened up on the, on the episode that started the next day. They needed somebody to, that was there and ready to go. And they gave me a, a second chance and I did it my way that time. And that number ended up being the best one of the night, got a standing ovation. And from then on out, that was like the beginning of the journey. So that's the long-winded thing to demand's answer. And then, and then once that happened, I knew that if I um, if I didn't grab that brass ring, that I could miss my opportunity. So I was supposed to do a show that year, a Broadway show. I was supposed to do, I think it was Promises, Promises with Rob Ashford. And I, I had to make a really tough decision and said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to perform. I'm going to stay in LA and be a TV choreographer. And I got on Dancing with the Stars as like a ghost choreographer. And I started choreographing episodic work. I got on How I Met Your Mother as a choreographer, which is How I Met Neil Patrick Harris, which developed that relationship. And it was through Neil that I was on my first Broadway show. But, but I made the choice to be terrified with and, and possibly starve and give up my, at that point, flourishing Broadway career because it was, it was like a now or never situation. And I still was, I was only 23. So a lot of people thought I was crazy. My agents thought I was crazy. I had to leave my performing agents and, and sort of find myself an agent that wanted to be a, my choreographic agent. Um, and I, I didn't know if it was going to work out or not, but I definitely believed that that was the moment in time and, and I went for it. That, that's such a crazy story that, I mean, and to think that you've been on the show now for I mean, what? I mean, it's nine been years. nine years. I would say nine or nine 10 years. years now. Yeah. I mean, um, and that's crazy to think that it you started so young and it was really just by force of will uh, that you got on the show. So that's uh, that's amazing. I, I've written about and I've talked about I I love So You Think You Can Dance. I think it's the most artistically pure thing on television, at least, you know, on a regular basis, because like you said, they they tell stories and they're emotional, but they're funny. And it's you get to see the process and those condensed packages, obviously. But I, I, I love that show for so many reasons. And it's it's appointment television for me. And, and you're one of the reasons why. So um, it's so cool to hear that you were the same way before you forced yourself onto the show. I was indeed. I love you say artistically pure. Like the show has remained on the air because it's it's not controversial. It's not offering the drama, you know, of a reality show in terms of it's not about people fighting or being nasty to each other. It's literally taking a group of really cool artists, the choreographers, who I think are the top at their at their game in the in the country, and then finding all this great new talent and putting them together in a melting pot and being like, create create anything you want in your brain and, and we'll put it on TV once a week. And that type of show, it just is like, it's why it has flourished and, and maintained somewhat of our core fan base over the years. And it's shifted a little bit, but um, you know, and certainly the numbers have gone down from what they used to be, but it remained on the air because sure. I think it put some, something positive into the world. And um, it's also completely changed a generation of dancers who grew up on the show who now are so far beyond what dancers were 10, 15 years ago, um, mostly because they've grown up knowing I have to be good at everything. Yeah. They, they don't want to just train in ballet or in jazz. They know they have to do ballroom and hip hop and contemporary and tap. And, and so the dancers that I'm able to hire now that are 18, 19 years old, who literally have never known a world without so you can get it in, they are they're like beasts and can do everything. And a lot of them are on my stage and head over heels. And that's why that ensemble is unreal. 
Yeah, and I feel like there has to be some sort of uh, secret club that all of these So You Think You Can Dance alums that are working in, uh, on Broadway and on tours and stuff have to belong to because it seems like every show <laughs> I go to that's dance heavy has at least two or three people in it uh, that I recognize from the show. It, it just it happens without fail. Well, there's been a lot of dancers now on the show, and I have a special place in my heart for the ones that choose to come to Broadway, obviously. Right. But it's more about, like, if I had a room full of dancers in front of me in an audition, and I know that the, those three that have been on So You Think You Can Dance can handle the pressure of that, of being on a live television show, that's, it's hard on them. They've got to learn a dance every single week, sometimes multiple dances. They don't have a choice over it. They have to ace it, nail it, perform it perfectly live once in front of millions of people and then stand there and be judged for it. And I know if they can hack it on that show, then they could do any job, whether it be a live TV job or a theater job. And it just gives them, you know, it gives them a leg up. Um, so I think it is why they're, they're all flourishing. All these dancers are doing so well. Um, you know, whether they be in LA, they work constantly. If you watch any, if you watch any Absolutely. live, show or broadcast or any TV show. I mean, like you're constantly spotting faces from, from that TV show. And it's because a lot of the choreographers that do those jobs in the real world, they know those kids from the show. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm going to get you out on this, uh, looking back to head over heels. And so much of the talk about this show is that it is not dissimilar from, so you think you can dance and that there's this purity and this joy to this show that I think when you tell people it's based on a 15th or 16th century poem and it has the music from the Go-Go's, they don't really understand what that concept means. But when people go to the theater and see it, it's just fun. When you think about an audience member coming into this show completely blank with no preconceived expectations, what do you think the experience is of seeing head over heels that they'll take with them when they leave? I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing to be able to create something that that people just can discover on their own. I mean, it's I'm telling you, it's been so hard to get the people in the door for that reason. And I know our producers sure. are just figuring out, like, how do we get people to understand what this is? Because it's not a movie title. And the Go-Go's are great music, but it's not like Beyonce's music that would get people in the door. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of a hard road everywhere we've gone. And then yet once they're in the seats they are they're hooked they're they're so into it um when the uh, the most thrilling few nights of my life in a theater were one our first preview in san francisco when that curtain went up and literally we knew that every single person in the audience had no idea what was what was about to hit them and and being so in love with the piece i mean i've been very very vocal about the fact that this is my favorite thing I have ever done in my life. I am so proud top to bottom of what we were able to do with this show and what it stands for. And so having something you love so much being shown for the first time to audiences and hearing them laugh at jokes for the first time and and hoot and holler at numbers and the clap for like a dance break that happened. I mean, I was, I sat in that audience and couldn't breathe for two hours and cried. And so, you know, it was, that was an incredible experience. And New York, I think, embraced this even more than, than San Francisco did. But there's, um, I, I would just say, like 90% of the people that come into the house, I don't know how they end up there or why. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not the tourist show that everyone's just going to buy for no reason. It's, you know, but I look at this, um, this audience that's in, as diverse as our cast is on stage, whether they be from middle America on a family vacation or whether they're, you know, downtown club kids there to support Peppermint. I mean, for whatever it is, they all start very separate at the beginning of the show. And I, and I watch the unity happen like through that house and everybody jumping on their feet at the end to cheer for these characters. And it makes me feel like every night we take people on a journey and, and you like them by the end. Um, you know, so I, it's hard to ask somebody to spend their money on, on a whim, on a trust me, you'll like it, you know, <laughs> but I, um, I've never been more confident in telling people, I promise you, you will have a great time if you go to the show. And also I've never seen people be more vocal on social media you know, Absolutely. our fans and the people that have found us are trying so hard to help us out and to tell their friends and to spread the word, which is why 
We, you know, our producers are pushing onwards. We are fighting through, you know, trying to get bodies in the seats. And, and you know, I will actually say, like, that our attendance has been great. We're just having to sell tickets at such a discounted rate to get people there right. because asking somebody to drop 160 bucks on a ticket that, for something they don't know is really tough. So we just want people to see it. Therefore, like you can get a great discounted ticket. You can find one and, and get in the door and we are watching our numbers grow. We just gotta, you know, we gotta figure out the rest of it. And I just have hope. And I, you know, I know that we've delivered something that I think needs to be in the world. And I think that it's, it's such a, a breath of fresh air. Um, you know, we had a very big blockbuster kind of season last year on Broadway. It was a lot of recognizable names and a lot of movies and there's nothing wrong with that. But when, when something comes along, that's trying to break the mold and be a little bit different. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's weird to say this about your own show, but I think we're a little ahead of our time in terms of <laughs> I don't quite think when when you do something that hasn't been seen before, a lot of people are like, "Whoa, what is happening?" I don't I don't have anything to compare that to. Therefore, I don't know how to like what box to put this in. And so I'm very proud to be doing something that I think is ahead of its time. But I would like <laughs> my audiences to catch up very quickly so that <laughs> so that we can have uh, you know so that more people can see it and we can have a healthy run. Thanks for listening to this special episode on Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt. And you can reach out to Broadway Radio on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. I will have social media information for both Bonnie and Spencer in the show notes and on BroadwayRadio.com. I will also have a link for you to purchase tickets to see Head Over Heels on Broadway, which you absolutely should. Thanks to Lisa Goldberg and, as always, James Marino. Have a great day and make sure you've got at least a little bit of the beat.